So uh, first, I just want to say thank you so much, King's Cross Church, for uh, partnering uh, with me for this work at Queens College. Uh, this work does not happen without your prayers, uh, without your financial partnership. Um, so I'm, I'm truly, truly grateful for all of you. I'll just give kind of a quick update about this past semester uh, before um, I share the message. Uh, so this semester, you know, students were actually on campus uh, in the fall. Is there was like no students on campus. It was like, how am I gonna how am I gonna meet people? So it was it was great to to meet students, and I was just surprised as the semester went on. There got to be like a regular uh, way for us to meet up. Uh, I bought lunch for all of them, and then you know, free food draws uh, students, and then uh, we just, we had Bible studies together, and very free flowing. I printed out the passages for them, I, and I just had open discussion with them. Let them come with the questions, let them come with any opposition, anything that they may have. Uh, but it was just a moment for us to be together, to be in community, and for students to really meet each other after a whole years of, of not even being on campus. So um, that, that's a little bit of what's been going on, and uh, I just, I'm really, really grateful for how you've been supporting me in this work. So, uh, yeah. All right. So today's, uh, today's message comes from Titus, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And read for us. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this time. Uh, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me and encourage and convict uh, this church. Lord, uh, we give all glory unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you knew the future, how would that change your life? Would you even change anything? See, it's one of the questions that the movie Arrival tries to answer. It was one of those movies that was nominated for an Oscar back in 2016, which feels like forever ago. 
Amy Adams, she plays an expert in language. And Jeremy Renner, he's an, he plays an expert in physics. And when a bunch of aliens come to Earth, they are recruited to figure out what is going on. As they make contact and try to communicate with them, uh, they eventually discover that the aliens are here to help humanity. They want humanity to prosper and be united because in 3,000 years, they're going to need the human's help. Now, throughout all this communication is a revelation that the aliens have a completely different way of thinking about time. See, humans understand time in a very linear, progressive fashion. Right? First you're born, then you grow up, you go to school, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, you die. Point A to point B to point C to point D and so on. But the aliens perceive time in a non-linear fashion. Now the character that Amy Adams plays, she eventually gets the ability to see flashes, glimpses of the future. She sees things that allow her to basically prevent world war and create international unity. But she also sees something personal. She sees her daughter dying from an incurable disease. Now when she gets that vision, she's not married. She has no children. So she's seen a, a future that is super tragic, but also seems preventable. Now, what would you do? You see, in the midst of this existential crisis is the, this prevailing concept of time. It's time that dominates our thinking. And for the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, he uses the concept of time to also frame the way that we should be thinking of our lives. See, Paul's letter to Titus is basically all about good works. Do good works. And here in Titus chapter 2, the main point is live a lifetime of good works. Live a lifetime of good works. And we see that in three points, three frames of time. The present, the past, and the future. The present, the past, and the future. So point number one, the present. And I want to draw your attention first to verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the present age. See, Christianity is practical. It's amazing so for how to live in the present. See, Christians sometimes get criticized for not really being in the present, right, in the now. They're either obsessed with the future, like let's not forget the fiasco of some prominent Christian leaders who, you know, tried to predict the date of the end of the world, or they're hopelessly stuck in the past, right? A lot of Christians ask, what should I do with my life? What is God's will? And Paul is telling Titus, and he's telling us exactly what we should be doing, how to live in the present. So you take a look at verses 1 through 10. Paul encourages Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Or another way to translate sound is healthy. Healthy doctrine. A healthy theology. Paul's point is that a healthy theology should necessarily lead to godliness. Saving faith is always accompanied by good works. Our knowledge must be coupled with a godly life. Now, if I had more time, I would break down each of these categories of older men, older women, younger men, younger women, Titus himself, and slaves. But really, each of these categories could be its own sermon. But I want to make a couple of comments about Paul's instructions here. Some themes I want to draw from these 10 verses. First, Christians are to view one another as family members. See, Paul even opens up this letter by addressing Titus as a true child of the faith. Our faith 
draws us together as family. In the same way that parents take ownership of their own children, in the same way that siblings take ownership of each other, Paul is telling the older men to be models of good works for the younger men. Show integrity in your teaching and your conduct. Paul exhorts the older women to be lovers of their husbands and children and train the younger ones to do the same. You see, our salvation is not only personal, God saved me, but it's also communal. God has brought me into his family. This is one of the beauties of the Christian faith. See, faith creates family. Now, friends, do you view your church as God's household and the church members as family members? Or are you more comfortable doing church in isolation? See, COVID hasn't helped, but friends, what might King's Cross Church look like if you all truly called each other brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers? Now, let's get practical for a second here. It might look like this. If you're older and you're married with children, take someone younger out for a meal consistently. If you're someone younger, offer to babysit for those families with little children. Couples spend time with those who are single. Singles spend time with couples. And you can't escape what this passage says about teaching. Teaching about life and doctrine. Now, for those of you who are experienced, right, you work in the fields of finance, of education, of fashion, of healthcare. Share how your faith impacts your work with those who are younger. Spend time with them and be present. Laugh together. Cry together. Disagree with each other. And then make up with each other. See, friends, this is family. Now, the second comment is this. The Greek word for self-controlled is all throughout this section. Verse 2, older men are to be self-controlled. Verse 4, older women are to train the younger women to be self-controlled. Verse 5, younger women are themselves to be self-controlled. Verse 6, younger men. This self-controlled personality, it is the ability to curb our desires and impulses to produce a specific outcome. Like athletes and soldiers come to mind. This intense ability to control impulses in order to succeed. I just think about the workaholic tendencies of people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. Now, I'm obviously not telling you to be a workaholic, but you should be thinking about applying that same dedication, that same devotion to curbing your desires and your impulses. Friends, where is God calling you to be more sober, more temperate, more self-controlled. Now, it's easy to attack our addictions to social media or entertainment, but how about this? Are you self-controlled when it comes to someone else's approval? Are you obsessed with power and recognition? Do you desire comfort to the point of idolatry? Are you being self-controlled about your own desire to control every single detail in your life? And the final comment, Godliness is missional. Godliness is missional. Verses 5 and 10 say this, that the word of God may not be reviled, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Being good, doing good works, has a purpose. How the world receives the word of God and the doctrine of God our Savior is at stake. See, in chapter 1, Paul calls the Cretans, right, the people whom Titus was ministering to, he calls them liars, He calls them evil beasts. He calls them lazy gluttons. I mean, he does not hold back. 
And if that's how Christians act, that does serious harm to our witness. In, in campus ministry, I come across uh, a lot of college students who grew up in the church and they've left it because of hypocrisy. Right? They couldn't put up with the ways you know, their fellow congregants were preaching one thing and they were living out something completely opposite. And the worst offense was gossip. Gossip. I mean, gossip doesn't just tear people down, but it destroys communities and institutions. When Christians act like the Cretans in this letter, being dishonest, evil, and lazy, then those outside of the faith, they just simply can't take the word of God seriously. Like they're, they're just going to say, why bother with something that at best makes no difference in my life and at worst makes me a hypocrite? Friends, how is your daily conduct hurting or helping the reputation and reception of the word of God? But, on the other hand, when Christians act like they're supposed to, like laid out here in this passage, being upright, self-control, being a godly, loving family, that speaks volumes to our culture. There's an attractiveness, there's a beauty about that witness that has the ability to draw non-Christians. And it's not just about doing this alone, but doing it together as a church. And here, I want to commend you, King's Cross. You know, I get the weekly church update emails, and I'm so encouraged by the way you're serving the community through volunteering at the food pantry, uh, at the local pregnancy counseling center, donating to Ukraine relief efforts. It's really so encouraging to read about. And friends, I want you to keep at it. Keep at it. Now, if you're a pastor or a leader in any sort of ministry context, here's the application for you. Verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You have to teach your people how to live. You have to model for them how to live. And for all of us, here's the application. Do good works right now. But don't overthink this. See, one of my professors in seminary, he knows Rosaria Butterfield, the author of The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and he asked her once, when are you going to write your next book? And she answered, I don't know when. I'm, I'm too busy trying to be a good wife a good mother, and a good church person. There's no time for anything else. That's so, that's so insightful, so insightful. You see, when we come to Judgment Day, I don't think God is going to be like, did you change the world? Did you convert every single person you ever met? How many Christian books did you write? But I do think he'll ask this. Did you honor your marriage vows? Did you honor your infant baptism vows? Did you honor your church membership vows. And look, if you're not married or if you don't have kids, nowhere are you left off the hook in those three questions. Have you honored the promises you made to those you committed to? You know, on Instagram, I was scrolling through and I came across the King's Cross page and I was so happy. I was like, it was an absolute delight to just see all those baptisms last Sunday. I mean, what a way to celebrate Easter. Church, remember those vows you made. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I invite you to look over verses 1 through 10. See, the attacks on Christians for being hypocrites and not living up to their standards, I understand that. I get it. But consider this. If this is what a Christian family should look like, isn't there something attractive about this? See, in our current society where attacks are being lobbed on every side, what the Bible is proposing here as a solution is healing through good works, right now, in the present. See, I know the temptation is strong to completely dismiss Christianity because of what some, Christ some Christians do sometimes, but instead of judging the Bible by what Christians do, hear what the Bible is saying as it paints for you a picture of a reality that's better 
than what we see in the world through Christians doing good works. It's just something to consider. So we talked about the present, right? Now point two, the past. And we're looking at verses 11 and 14. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In contrast to the Koreans who love to appear godly, but their lifestyle spoke otherwise, Paul reminds Titus and us that the basis for us doing good works is the appearance of the grace of God. It is God's goodness, his benevolence. It is God's gracious attitude towards us. God longs to show us his favor. He actually wants to help us. This is God's very character, and it has already happened. This is a past event, and this past event This grace brings salvation for all people. Now, I don't want to get into a discussion here about does God save everyone or not, but the point of this phrase here is that God saves all kinds of people. Now, I want you to look at this verse and be be very honest. We say God saves all kinds, right? All groups, every ethnicity, every racial group, every socioeconomic group, every age, every type of vocation. But do we live as if that's true. You see, if I was Titus, I would have looked at the lying, evil, lazy Koreans and thought, nah, salvation ain't for them. Like, yes, but no. See, friends, what are your excluding tendencies? Who are you more likely to think salvation hasn't come to them? And the way you'll know is, who do you not want to do good works towards? You see, in the kingdom of God, there is a paradigm shift. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Matthew 5.47. My Greek professor, he wrote this, if we do good works only for those who are like us, whether in terms of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, then we are no different from the world. Friends, as we endeavor to live a lifetime of good works, let us truly be sober and consider the sinful, ostracizing tendencies of our own hearts. But see, the grace of God, verse 14, is more than just some abstract concept of salvation. It is fully realized in an actual person, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, when you look at verses 1 through 10, you might start to think, this is hard. This is really difficult, almost impossible. See, denying my own impulses, training younger people who don't even want to listen to me, Doing good works to people whose life situation I don't even understand or they don't even look like me. And to do this all the time so that non-Christians receive a good testimony of God's word. Sounds exhausting, right? You know, when you've been working at a job for a really long time, sometimes you forget why you do what you do. You really have to go back into your past from when you started and reimagine that excitement, relive that motivation, Think back to when you first believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There was this passion, right? This fire. You wanted to do anything and everything for God. And maybe for some of you, that's died over time. But the reason why you were so zealous was because that grace, 
That feeling of God's love towards you was still so fresh, and Paul is helping us to recapture that heart by reminding us of God's grace. Grace transforms us. It makes us loving. It makes us kind, but the reason why it does this is because we first experienced love and kindness from Jesus himself. See, Paul, right before this chapter, he outlines all kinds of terrible people. Right at the end of chapter one, he says, these are the kinds of people who should not be elders in a church. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But here in verse 14, Paul is saying that Jesus redeemed us from all lawlessness and purified us for himself. When you look back on your past, how you once were living in disobedience and how you too needed to be purified, when you really think about that and really let that sink in each and every day, you're actually softening your heart to the gospel so that you can soften your heart to others. You were spiritually dead and he gave you new life. And more than that, he calls you his own possession. What greater words are there to hear than I will be your God and you will be my people? What greater motivation do you need to do good works towards others? Friends, no matter what past you bring today, I'm glad you're here. But more than that, God is glad you're here. And he is inviting you to confront your past by telling you about his past. Jesus Christ came to bring restoration. You see, Jesus promises healing, forgiveness, and redemption. He promises the covering of your open wounds, but he does it with his open wounds. Right? The really annoying person that you find it hard to deny yourself for, the younger woman that you're discipling who just misses every meeting with you, the older man who is actually not so self-controlled and just keeps yelling at you about how you're part of the lazy generation that's leading this country to hell, Jesus Christ bled and died for these people. He denied his own status, his own dignity, his own life. He breathed his last on the cross so that we could breathe a new spiritual air, the air of grace. Friends, bring your past to Jesus and let his lifetime of good works, which ended up in him dying for you, draw you to your knees. But don't stay there. Because friends, there is new life. Last week we celebrated Easter and Pastor Rob spoke of the the new life that we have that is only possible because Jesus rose from the grave. We will be stuck in death, trying to live life from death if only the crucifixion were true. But friends, the resurrection is true. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So we talked about the present and the past, but finally, point three, the future. Verse 13 spells this out perfectly. As we live in the present, Rooted in the good news of the past, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And there's that word appearing again. And friends, Jesus coming again, that is our blessed hope. See, we're all thinking about the future. And you know what's truly lacking in our society today, right now? Hope. Hope. We're still going through COVID. The world is in a crisis with Ukraine. 
Every day, there seems to be news of women being attacked on the streets. And with this lack of hope, it makes sense why people are treating other people the way they are, canceling the other person, treating them as evil. You see, if there's no hope, it makes sense to want to win right now. But Paul is saying that it's not just the past and the present that matter, but we also have a sure future to look forward to. Hear me again, friends. If you are in Christ, you know what the future holds. I'm not saying that you're going to know exactly what happens five years down the line or ten years down the line, but you know this, that Jesus will come again. And if we know that Jesus will come again, that affects everything that we do right now in the present. You see, here's the thing. Even if we have a past and a present that is grounded, right, has an unshakable foundation, even that's not fully enough for us to do good works. There's still something wrong with this world, even as we live in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. And Paul understood this. And that's why he's telling Titus that Jesus will come again. He's saying, look, Titus, you and all the Christians in the world, you're actually agents. You are the agents of good in the world right now. So train the younger generation. Use your money and your time wisely. Teach them about Jesus. Model generosity and hospitality. Live a lifetime of good works because your future is secure. You don't have to worry. Now, a comment here. You can only truly and eagerly await someone that you actually know. I have friends who have gone through the online dating scene, and they're always nervous about meeting the person for the first time. And they always, they always talk about the anticipation, even after going through everything in their profile, right? stalking their social media. Is this person actually going to live up to my expectations? But that anticipation is nothing compared to waiting for someone you actually know really well. Right? That anticipation will never compare to the anticipation I have when I come home to my family after I've been away from them for a long time because I know my wife. I know my son. And because I deeply know them, that's why I want to be with them. Friends, do you know Jesus? Do you have fellowship with him right now? How is your scripture reading and your prayer life? If he came back right now, would he say, welcome home, my child? Or will he say, I never knew you? How much are you fantasizing about Christ's coming? And I mean that to say, are you actually excited about being with him for all eternity? In Matthew 13, there's the parable of the hidden treasure right, in the pearl. The guys who found these things of great value, they went and they sold everything that they had just to buy it. And that's what it's like to truly desire Christ. So I just recently saw Spider-Man, No Way Home. I know I'm late to the party. Now, there was this line that MJ said that really hung with me. If you expect disappointment, then you can never really be disappointed. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like that sometimes. You know, it's like a, it's a defense mechanism. But what Paul is saying here, it completely flips that on its head. Instead, if you expect Jesus then you have the perfect way to deal with disappointment. You know that Jesus will come again, and you know that the best is yet to come. 
And if you're excited about him coming again, wouldn't you want to know him now? Wouldn't you want to live for him now? Wouldn't you want to honor his command to love others right now? See, that first question I asked, if you knew the future, how would that change your life, is actually deeply implanted into all of us. Martin Heidegger, he's a philosopher, and he wrote about the concept of being, of being. He argues that to understand what it means to be a human being and to achieve authenticity, we must live in light of our death. His point is that we have to confront our mortality, our finitude, and only when we think about our lives in light of death do we find true joy and freedom, true being. And that's, that's, that's just so insightful. You see, all of our lives will end. And there's only really two ways that we deal with death. We either try to live our best life now, or we just don't think about it. But if what the Bible says is true, that there is something even better than this life after death, then that makes it easier to love others right now, even if it means going through suffering. And that's only possible because we look to the one who was victorious over death. You see, Jesus foresaw a future of the cross, of his death, and he still did the greatest work of all because he saw a future of redeemed humanity through his death. He did it because he loves you. I want to close with this quote by C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians who have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. You can only be effective in doing good works by giving up present pleasures and comforts. And you can only do that by thinking of Christ, desiring Christ. But even more than that, he is thinking of you. He thought of you so much that he became human for you. Even now, Christ is interceding for you. Even now, Christ is loving you, showering you with grace and affection. Even now, Christ is that sweet aroma. Like when you're eagerly waiting as your mom is cooking you this amazing meal, and the smell just fills your nose. You see, Jesus Christ is the way of love, right? That's the theme for your church this year, the way of love. And he flows throughout all of our pasts, presents, and futures. But even more than that, he is the God of the past, present, and future. You see, this is the entirety of the Christian life. Christ has come in the past, and Christ will come again in the future. Let those be the bookends of your life as you live right now, because that will be your impetus. That will be your motivation for doing good works right now, not because you're trying to earn your way into heaven. It's actually only when we realize that our good works are not enough will we do them with the right heart. See, he has already purified you. You are already his prized possession. So now go and do good works in his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we are in the midst of this, this time of a pandemic, news of global war, 
fear of even just walking out of our house sometimes. Lord, may you implant deeply in us the sureness of our salvation that is only in you. I pray that you would encourage King's Cross as they step out into this new year of, of ministry, as they reflect on the way of love. Have them turn to you. May you be their motivation and their heart for doing good works here in this community, here in Flushing, here in Queens. May this church be salt and light in this neighborhood. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower them to do this with zeal, with love, with kindness. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.